Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Jonathan Abrams is a serial entrepreneur, as well as an active angel investor and an LP. He is currently the founder and CEO of Nuzzle, the best way to discover news from your friends. He was formerly the founder of Friendster and Hotlinks, and he's a co-founder of Founders Den in San Francisco. Jonathan started his career as an engineer at Netscape. Jonathan, we are excited to have you on Origins. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so you've done all sorts of things over the course of your career. Um, primarily, you've been an entrepreneur and um, business builder. Um, could you uh, tell us a little bit about how you how you started your career? Have you always been in? You've always pretty much been in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, correct? Uh, No, actually, I started off in Canada, which is where I'm originally from. So I grew up in Toronto, and uh, after college, I actually was working in Ottawa writing telephone software at Nortel. And what brought you out to the Valley? Uh, So I was uh, was working on telephone software, really boring, uh, very Dilbert-esque, and uh, then I read a book uh, about Silicon Valley and decided uh, to email my resume to Yahoo and Netscape. And I never heard back from Yahoo, but Netscape offered me a job, and I was very happy to move to Silicon Valley. How did you? Uh, how did you apply? You sent them I just, an no, email, a letter. I, just, I mean, I just sent them an email. I mean, okay. I had no connections in Silicon Valley. I was right. way off in Ottawa. Right. Uh, you know, and Ottawa is pretty disconnected from the Silicon Valley scene. So I just emailed, um, you know, jobs at netscape.com, sure. jobs at at yahoo.com. Like I said, never never got any response from Yahoo, but I right. got a job at Netscape and that was my entree to Silicon Valley. And that was what your Netscape was already public at the time? It was just after they'd gone okay. public. I mean, Netscape went from not existing to public to hyper growth to then actually having problems and selling AOL all in very short succession. And so you joined in late Late 90s and moved out to the Valley? Uh, it was 96, I think, yeah. Okay, got it. And what did you do there? I was a software engineer. So, I mean, most of the beginning of my career I was a software engineer. And even today, well, actually, not in the last few months, but I wrote the original prototype of Nuzzle, just like I did with Friendster. So even after I became an entrepreneur, I've still been pretty technical and hands-on and and use my engineering skills to create the prototypes uh, from for, I think, all of my companies. But yeah, I was an engineer at Netscape uh, working on uh, Java implementation in the browser. Pretty pretty boring stuff, uh, but uh, um, I, I enjoyed it. I found Netscape to be pretty exciting and crazy times. What, uh, you were there through the dot-com bust? Um, the dot-com bust was uh, actually my experience running my first company. So after Netscape, uh, I worked briefly at another startup, and then I started my first company, which wasn't Friendster. It was called Hotlinks. This was before Friendster. And that company, uh, that was my first time experience as an entrepreneur and CEO. I had no idea what I was doing. And we went through the dot-com boom, and then the dot-com crash while I was a first-time founder. 
And did you, how did you decide to start that company? Did you find other co-founders? Did you raise capital? Um, I was a single founder. Uh, I'd, I'd only lived in the U.S. for two years. Didn't really know a lot of folks. Uh, you know, hadn't gone to Stanford or MIT or anything like that. Uh, but I actually did start off raising a uh, million dollars right, right from the get-go. Um, I guess two years after entering the country with no business experience, so that was pretty cool. I didn't actually probably even know what an angel investor was. Um, I'm not sure how many angels there were around in I guess it was, it was 98, but I certainly didn't know any. Uh, but what I had done is while I was working at Netscape, in the evenings I would go and I would go to all these events, the MIT club, and, um, there's a bunch of others. There was one, uh, that has changed its names many times, but at the time, at the, at the early days, Dave McClure, who you probably know from Fiverr Startups, was yeah. actually the president of this thing long, long before he'd done that. And mm -hmm. it was at like the Hilton in the, in Sunnyvale. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to go to their events and, and that organization, I was later on the advisory board of that organization for like 10 years. They've changed names many times. It was called like S-Face then. But I used to go to all these events and uh, events at Stanford and I would listen to VCs and entrepreneurs talk and sort of explain this whole thing. And then I would try to network with folks. Uh, one of the very first people I met was George Zachary, who's now at CRV, mm -hmm. who's now a friend and an investor in Nuzzle. Um, but uh, he would, you know, sometimes be the speaker at these events, and I would go up afterwards and try to talk to those folks and network. And uh, eventually, uh, I decided to uh, to leave the startup I was at after Netscape, start my own thing. Got introductions from folks to VCs. Most of them said no, and uh, one said yes, and boom, I was a, a venture funded entrepreneur with very little experience. And then, as we said, going through the dot com boom and crash, which was very crazy as well. So fast forward a little bit. Uh, to Friendster, mm -hmm. which I'm sure most people know. Right. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you got going or where the genesis of the idea came from and how that, how that got started? Sure. Yeah. So this was 2002. So things were really dead. It was the dot-com crash period. Uh, not a lot going on. This and was right after Hotlinks. Uh, after Hotlinks, yeah, we sold Hotlinks in, after the dot-com crash. I took a job as head of engineering at another startup, a uh, venture-backed startup that was doing mobile stuff. That company ended up going through a merger as well, and then I moved on, and uh, 2002 was really, really, really slow and dead. So I just had a bunch of goofy ideas about how um, people communicated on the internet, and some of it was informed by the way I had learned to network as an entrepreneur, um, and I just, you know, all this stuff coalesced in my head, you know, the six degrees of separation concept as well as the sort of creepy anonymous way that, that most people uh, communicate on the internet. And I just had this crazy idea of combining a lot of these thoughts into this idea for a site where you'd use your real name, your real picture, and you'd have your real social graph represented online. Um, and things were so slow that even though it was a goofy idea, I built a prototype, I didn't have a lot else to do. Um, and then that ended up uh, exploding. How did you... And you were the only person working on the prototype. Like, how did that? You know, Initially, nights and weekends. How did you did that all by yourself? Well, I, I mean, I actually had plenty of time because things were right. totally dead in right. two thousand and two. Everybody was initially. Pardon? Everybody was unemployed. It was a great time. Yeah, to find I mean, there were pink slip parties. <laughs> right. I mean, people were just leaving the Bay Area. People were going mm -hmm. back to school. It was dead. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, initially, uh, initially, I started working on it by myself, and later, I actually did add some people. Um, in the earliest days, we didn't we didn't have an office. I, I had uh, a few uh, people, some of whom had worked for me before, um, 
and a very, very teeny team. And, you know, we didn't even have an office initially when we eventually raised our initial angel money. Uh, and then later we got an office and later we raised more. Um, but we started, yeah, we started pretty small, but after, once it started growing and growing and growing, um, even, uh, though people, uh, in 2002 were really like not investing in stuff, uh, we ended up, uh, finally raising some money because just the, the growth of, of it was, mm. was sort of able to overcome people's, uh, sort of hangover from the dot-com crash. Where was the early growth coming from? Who were your, who were your first users? It was actually just friends of friends of friends of mine. So I literally just invited a few people to the prototype and uh, they invited people and they invited people just like the, the shampoo commercial from like, uh, I don't know, it was the 70s. Um, and it really just grew from there. So it really ended up initially being a lot of San Francisco people and, and New York people, um, you know, mostly younger. Um, but it just literally grew from, from sort of friends of friends of friends of friends of the people I initially invited. At what point, at what point did you feel like, oh shit, there's like a, there's like a real thing here, a real product, a real company rather than a, a project? Pretty, pretty early. Um, within a few months, we were having trouble keeping it running. It was right. growing exponentially and, uh, we were having, um, uh, people from newspapers and magazines constantly contacting us, wanting to write stories about it. It was it was pretty crazy, and 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 definitely, you know, I the first company, Hotlinks, which was a social bookmarking company, we didn't have that. I mean, we had press coverage, we had users, but it just was not like what happened with Friendster, and it was especially marked because it was it was coming from this dot com crash period. So, for something to be that people were getting excited about and when it was growing on the internet was just sort of a big deal. How do you now think about Friendster in the context of? other social sites that began to pop up around that time, or I guess just afterwards, like MySpace. When, when did MySpace get started? Um, MySpace, I don't know, it wasn't that long. I right, mean, after, so MySpace and Facebook. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a crazy period because we were mostly afraid of Yahoo and, and Google, who both launched multiple social networking sites, right. but there was a whole bunch of others. There was, there was Tribe, which was actually started by one of our own investors, and, mm. um, and a whole bunch of others. There was Tickle, there was High Five, uh, by the time MySpace and Facebook started, um, which was still not very long, I mean, all this happened pretty quick. There was there was probably at least twenty before MySpace or or Facebook, so mm. it was a little overwhelming. Just mm. you know, being this teeny young startup and having a million copycats emerge, so mm. it was a crazy time. And you know, it, but it was clear that Friendster, the ideas behind Friendster, were just bigger than one company. And there was a whole generation of of social media companies, not just the Friendster copycats, but companies like Napster before it. I mean, well, I, Napster, I kind of think of as Napster. Napster I think predates Friendster, but yeah. companies like Flickr right, and right, Yelp right. and uh, a whole bunch of the web what was I guess then became called Web 2.0 or social media. A lot of those companies were inspired by Friendster, and you know, and many entrepreneurs like Chris Dixon or other folks uh, over the years, you know, would say they. Sort of like the, it was kind of like what I had when I downloaded Mosaic. They mm. uh, went onto Friendster and saw this whole new concept of like social graph and user generated content and real identity and all this kind of stuff. And they were just like, whoa. And that inspired a lot of these, um, this sort of that whole generation of, of, of social companies. What did you, what were some of the biggest learnings from those, from those days? There are a lot. There are a lot. I mean, and, and I think I inadvertently, unintentionally got, 
a lot of education about how the venture world works from some of the things that happened to Friendster. I mean, we went through six CEOs in six years. Um, and I got sort of a peek into, you know, behind the curtain of succession planning at venture firms and a lot of stuff. So we learned a lot of painful lessons. I think probably the biggest thing was, was to retain control. Mm. Um, I remember that Naval and Nivy on Venture Hacks once blogged something about how valuation is temporary, control is forever. And mm. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, until they've been through certain experiences, will, will not understand that. And I mean, the final one, not actually not the final, but one of the more end chapters of Friendster was when the company was sold for less than the patents alone were worth. And of course, that was just one example of many things that that happened that if I had still been in control, I don't think would have happened. Mm. So, you know, you can have the greatest IP strategy in the world and you can have all sorts of things that you do right. But if you lose control of the company, uh, you, you know, all those things might end up being sort of uh, sort of pointless. So I think that's probably the number one lesson. Mm. Uh, but there's a lot of others. I mean, uh, we ended up having three levels of CEOs, board members, and VPs who really didn't understand and didn't use the product and their friends didn't. And yeah. that was obviously not a great thing. This was after the company Adventure Funding. And, you know, in those earliest days when we were this very scrappy, uh, you know, sort of band of misfits growing it exponentially, the company was incredibly successful. Um, and I think MySpace and Facebook for their first couple of years actually were still more representative of that. I think they had pretty young management teams, many of whom, you know, had been users of Friendster who understood what we were doing and copied yeah. it. And, but then Friendster ended up having a lot of layers of, of folks in charge that really didn't understand what we were doing. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about you as a, an angel investor mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, and an LP. Sure. The show is in fact about, uh, the limited partner community. Um, but, uh, just give us a, a little bit of context around what you're, what you're doing now as a, as a founder and entrepreneur, particularly, um, uh, as you're running Nuzzle, which we're, you know, we're big, big fans of. Sure. So uh, first of all, thank you. So yeah, my day job right now is as founder and CEO of Nuzzle, which is a social news service. Uh, a lot of people use it. They connect their Twitter and they get personalized news. And a lot of uh, VCs and CEOs and journalists uh, use it every day. Uh, we also launched a newsletter platform that lets people, influencers curate newsletters that people can subscribe to without having to have an account or, or an app. And that's something that we're very focused on right now. So that's my day job. That's what I'm supposed to be focused on. So I don't actually have a lot of time for the other stuff, including angel investment. And I'm frequently getting emails about uh, angel investment stuff that I actually just have to say I'm too busy to look at. Mm -hmm. So most of the angel investing I do has to be opportunistic because my job is running Nuzzle. That's my my real job. So a lot of the angel investing that I that I do, uh, sometimes it's companies that are at Founders Den. I guess I should explain what Founders Den is in right. a second. Uh, sometimes a company is a company that uh, a friend of mine runs, or it might be a company where um, somebody I know well is investing, and I'm sort of piggybacking on their due diligence. So I've invested in probably over 50 startups. Um, I've actually tried to invest in a lot because I know that diversification of the portfolio is important. And I've also, uh, in part, part of it you know, is to make money, part of it is to help other entrepreneurs, and part of it is to learn. Um, and I think, you know, uh, you need a portfolio of a decent size to really start to really learn what it's like to manage a portfolio and to see what works and what doesn't. Um, so I've invested in over 50 companies, I think by now. Um, and like I said, they, they're, some of them have been, a bunch of them have been white commenter companies. Some have been founders and companies, some of them started by friends, but I generally don't have time to sort of just have people I don't know coming in and pitching me right now. Cause that's just not my full-time job. 
Um, and I mentioned Founders Den. I should explain what that is. So Founders Den is a co-working space and sort of private club for entrepreneurs in San Francisco, started by me and three friends, uh, two of whom are also entrepreneurs, and one of whom, Zach Bogue, is now uh, a venture capitalist, and he has a very successful new fund called Data Collective, which mm-hmm. I'm an LP in, and we can right. talk about more about that when we get into the LP stuff. Um, but yeah, so Founders Den, uh, we started around five years ago. We've had a lot of great companies at Founders Den. Uh, Docker was at Founders Den when they were Dot Cloud, which is a, when actually I invested, uh, and a lot of other great companies. Um, and uh, and that's something that you know takes up a little bit of my time. Um, I'm also on the board of Girls in Tech and uh, some other things. Um, but it's it's tough, you know, because my real job is running Nuzzle, and I have to give priority to that. When did you start angel investing? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, you remember your first check. I think it was probably during the Friendster days. Okay. Um, but when I was doing Friendster, I was pretty um, uh, cautious about conflicts of interest. Mm. You know, Friendster was such a sort of um, an innovative company, and and you know, I wasn't sure of which areas it was going to. So when all these sort of social media companies started, I was a little cautious about potential conflicts of interest, and there's probably opportunities I could have done that would have been great mm. for me. But I was, I was a little, you know. Uh, too concerned, well, maybe not too concerned, but I was concerned about conflict of interest with that. Um, like what? Other companies? Yeah. I mean, I think if I had wanted to, I probably could have gotten a piece of a lot of the, you know, the sort of famous social media companies right. that were inspired mm-hmm. by Friendster. But right. I just didn't think that was appropriate at the time. I think uh, I've probably done much more angel investing since leaving Friendster. And I think, you know, with my did current you ever companies... Meet, did you ever meet Mark Zuckerberg around that time? Uh, as, yeah, I as had people building similar things in a similar space. I actually had dinner with him, but I think it was particularly in the context because Scott Sassa, the uh, the uh, NBC uh, president, who at the time was CEO of Friendster, he wanted to try to buy Facebook. Hmm. We weren't actually really big enough to to do that. Uh, I mean, the reality was and that's in what like two thousand four, two thousand four. So Friendster yeah. was still a startup, and 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 you know, and and didn't have. Uh, the valuation or cash or anything to really put down a formidable offer. Uh, um, so I had um, uh, dinner with Mark, um, although Sean Parker crashed the dinner, and that's a whole other story. And <laughs> I don't think we have time to go into any of that drama. Um, I think we should, you should tell us a tidbit from yeah, that dinner. That, that's, I think that's, uh, that might have to be for another episode. But uh, I did, uh, you know, I did uh, certainly meet uh Meet Mark and um, you know and, and lots of other uh, you know folks at, at all those companies. In fact, some of the other social networking copycats, some of them were started by friends of mine. Right. Um, the uh, founders of Hot or Not, who are buddies of mine and investors in Nuzzle, they started one that was called Yafro, yet another Friendster ripoff, as as a, as a you know as a joke. Uh, and I then knew, it all of a sudden wasn't a joke or something like that. That one, I don't think really went anywhere. The, fu- the founders of High Five were friends of mine. Mm. Um, in fact, Akash Garg, one of the co-founders of High Five, later a Twitter executive and now at Uber, he's an investor in Nuzzle. Uh, so some of these ones were started by friends right. of mine. Right. Do you, w- when you started angel investing, were you, were you primarily a financial investor or were you motivated more by just the fact that you love working with early companies and they were friends of yours and you like being involved or, you know, what was your mindset when you were thinking about starting to be an angel investor? I'd say both. I mean, I was certainly hoping to make money and, you know, the reality is 
if I invest in the public stock market, I am not going to do well, just like most people. I have no advantage. I don't know how to time it. And I'm, I'm at a complete disadvantage compared to, you know, all the people that Michael Lewis writes books about how they're all scamming us. You know, when it comes to angel investing, here's a situation where I, I think have an advantage. Uh, a lot of people know me as an entrepreneur or as somebody who's been giving back to the entrepreneurial ecosystem, whether it's S-Face or Steve Blank's entrepreneurship class or Founders Den or whatever. There's people who want me to be an investor in their company. And hopefully I have a little bit of skill at at being able to, you know, to guess, uh, you know, which of these are going to be successful or, or judge the entrepreneurs. Um, so I do think it's something where I at least have a chance of doing well. And, and actually my angel portfolio, at least on paper, and we can get into the whole business of liquidity okay. and marks and all that sure. kind of stuff. But at least on paper is, is doing quite well, probably, you know, way better than, uh, you know, my Vanguard portfolio. Right. But, but nonetheless, when you invest in a company as an angel investor, you have to be assuming that it's going to be worthless. Uh, you, you have to go into that with that as the assumption. Um, so, of course, part of it is uh, hopefully that you're also just it's somebody that you're excited to support and it's a fun company and you believe in them and you want to help and all that kind of stuff too. Do you, do you know, what was the first angel investment you made? What was the company? Um, you know, I actually do not remember which was the first. Um, I definitely, one of the early ones that does stand out was SlideShare. Hmm. Um, I remember I was giving a talk. I think it might've been an S-Face event where I said I was on the advisory board for many years. John Boutel, uh, one of the co-founders, came up to me uh, after the event to ask me for advice or thank me or something like that and introduced himself. And I was like, oh, SlideShare, I use that. Mm. So immediately he had a leg up because I'd already used his product. Right. And instead of you know some random guy with some dumb idea, this is a guy who had built something that works that I'd used. Um, and I liked him and I, I liked SlideShare and I told him I'd be interested in investing. So, um, they ended up, um, uh, doing a round. I think some of my investors in that were included Dave McClure and Mark Cuban, mm. some interesting other mm. angel investors in that company. Mm. And then later, uh, LinkedIn bought them and I actually uh, did pretty well. I got, I think a 20 X on that one. Um, and that was, I think one of my earliest, um, were there any other early ones that didn't do so well where you considered, hey, maybe I'm not so good at this and I should go back to investing in my Vanguard fund? Well, the ones, the ones that did the worst were not software tech investments. Okay. And that's actually where I learned a very mm. valuable lesson to stick with what I know. <laughs> right. So early on, I had a friend, for example, who had a vodka company and I invested. Uh, it was a friend, so I wanted to support a friend, but I also thought this guy was going to make money. He was hustling and I thought, yeah, like th there'd actually been a lot of M&A in that industry. Right. And I thought, yeah, this, this, you know, this could work. And unfortunately, it went out of business. And a couple other, there were a couple other friends, companies I invested in just because they were friends who were, mm -hmm. that were not software tech things. So I learned my lessons. And like, since then, I'll get an email once in a while, but somebody wanted me to invest in a beer or tequila or, mm. or stuff like that. And, you know, now there's a lot of VCs investing in things like mattresses and things like that. I stick with what I know. Um, mm. for a variety of reasons. I think I'm more likely to be able to judge it. I'm more likely to be able to add value. And if I was going to invest in a beer company or a bicycle company or a mattress company, I'd want to see a hundred of them and invest in the one that I was most impressed with. Because mm. when I see an enterprise software or social media company that I invest in, it has to really impress me out of a field of many. Because I see at Y Combinator, at Founders Den, my friends, I'm constantly seeing company, right. you know, software companies. So right. when I invest in one, it's one that I was especially impressed with. If I invested, if I see one beer company, I invest in one beer company, probably not a good idea. 
Plus, I know nothing about that industry. So um, the ones that did the worst, you know, early on were th- right. a few things I really just kind of did for fun or, or with friends. And I learned that lesson. So you started companies for a long time. Some point along the way, you said, hey, maybe I'll invest in some of those companies. Mm-hmm. And then at some point along the way, you said, maybe I'll invest in a few funds. Um, how, how did that, how did you start well, I don't think initially it was is was as conscious as that. Sure. Lately, I've had a great interest in this because for a few reasons. So, for one, I've seen friends like Zach with right. Data Collective starting these new venture funds um, that, and that's been super interesting. Another thing is that if you look at at um, Nuzzle's investors, uh, some of our investors are of this new generation of, yeah, I guess you can call them micro VCs. Of, uh, that's almost a silly. Silly name, because the reality is the big Santa Road firms were once a hundred million or smaller yeah. once upon a time too. Um, but homebrew, lowercase, great. We have this great um, slide that someone was showing us of all the, you know, First all the firms sizes. that you would, all the best funds today mm-hmm. that you would know Sequoia and Kleiner and all those folks, right? Um, what their first fund sizes were in inflation adjusted terms. Yep. And across the board, it was almost all under a hundred million. And in right. some cases under, you know, 50, 50 or 25. Yeah. Absolutely. I met Bon French from, I think, Adam Street Partners at a homebrew dinner. Um, a very uh, old school LP who, you know, helped many of these famous funds start right. decades ago. And he was telling me stories like that, you know, the, you know, the stories of when he was helping some of those super famous VCs get started, they were not doing billion dollar funds. I right. mean, they mm-hmm. were, they were, you know, so this is a sort of a natural thing. But if you look at Nuzzle, some of our investors include Homebrew, uh, Lowercase and SoftTech. And I think those new firms are just fantastic. I've enjoyed working with them. I think they're very successful. Um, you also got you know firms like Baseline and Floodgate. So there's this whole generation of firms, and I find that really exciting. Um, so, and I've also had a lot of experiences with the big Santa Road firms, and um, both good and bad. And I think that I've just been fascinated as an entrepreneur by some of these newer firms, some of the innovations that have been going on since I started all yeah. of this. Uh, things like first round capital, Y Combinator, AngelList, which I was an early investor in. Right. So I've been I've been really interested in this. I mean, part of what I've been doing since since I became an entrepreneur is helping other entrepreneurs and doing things like Founders Den or being on the advisory board of S Face or teaching at Steve Blank's entrepreneurship class. And as part of that, I've I've had a natural interest in learning more about what's really going on in the VC side. And then part of that is then learning about. Uh, the LP side as well, or being an LP. So it, that is something in, in, more, in recent years I've gotten more interested in. But where it all started was actually a little less conscious. So um, at Socializer, the company I started between Friendster and Nuzzle, um, I had learned the lesson of of working with investors that you probably already know rather than investors that you're sort of getting a shotgun marriage mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And the lead VC for Socializer was a guy named Richard Ling, a friend of mine at a firm called Rembrandt. And um, Richard actually is is not uh, currently uh, a VC right now. Um, but uh, at the time, he was a GP at that firm. And they had an entrepreneurial, like, I guess a sidecar fund mm-hmm. and asked me if I wanted to mm. uh, invest. Mm. And I thought, oh, that would be super interesting. Um, I thought it would be educational. Uh, but I also thought it'd be a good investment because, um, you know, you invest in one startup, you're probably going to lose your money. 
It could be an Uber. It's probably not going to be. Right. It's probably not even going to be a Docker. It's, you're probably going to lose your money. That's why you want a portfolio. But you know, investing in 50 companies is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And investing in one fund is probably a safe bet because um, you know, if it does really well, maybe it'll be a 4x or more. And if it does, if it does pretty badly, you probably are looking at like a 1x, not losing all your money. Right. right? I mean, if you, if you do a fund and you 1x, that's considered bad. Right. Um, so like I thought the risk reward ratio was pretty pretty good. Right. Um, and I just thought it'd be interesting. So that was that was perhaps the first uh, the first one I did. But since then I've maybe, you know, um, done around five others. And part of it has been uh, friends of mine starting new funds. So right. there's obviously, just like notation, a ton of new funds that have gotten created recently. Uh, although I don't think of it as sort of negatively as some, because because there's some people that go, oh, there's too many new funds. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually an exaggeration because I don't think there's too many. Most of them are teeny anyways. Right. And many of them I don't think are really serious. Mm. Um, but I think it's a great thing actually that there are these 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 new funds. Because I mean, you know, I think I think many of them like Data Collective and Softech and Homebrew and Lowercase are been fantastic to work with and are also doing extremely well. I think right. they're all pretty successful. And I, I'm, I'm a huge fan uh, of this new generation of, of, of funds. Um, so um, in some cases, I was given the opportunity to, you know, to be part of some of those. And, and, um, uh, and of course, like, kind of like with angel investing, I mean, I'm not um, writing gigantic, gigantic angel checks. So right. really, as most people who want me as an angel investor, it's not because the check size. Right. It's it's for another reason because, my, you know, my check is not going to, um, to you know, uh, it's not. Get you're not getting their whole seed round done. No, yeah. I, I'm not. I mean, there are a few people, and and I and I know actually most angel checks are small. Yeah. I mean, there are a few. You know, Mark Benioff and Max Levchin are investors in Nuzzle. They wrote pretty large checks. Right. Most people do not have that kind of liquidity. Uh, the vast majority of angel checks are small. Um, and then when it comes to LPs, of course, it's even more kind of funny because I mean, obviously, my my contribution as an LP is very small. So these are f- folks for some reason who. Uh, you know, who want uh, to give me opportunity or or, ha- or have me involved, um, and, and I just thought it was very interesting, and and actually it, it has been interesting. It has been incredibly educational because um, when I read, when I go to the general meeting, when I meet mm-hmm. other LPs, when I get the documents, and mm-hmm. I see stuff about the performance and all the different numbers and how they correlate and learn about their follow-on strategy and portfolio construction and, uh, you know, how different parts of the, the partner's compensation works. Right. It's very educational because this is, this is typically stuff that most entrepreneurs um, do not understand, probably don't even realize they don't understand mm-hmm. and, you know, may not even have any access to learning about those kind of things. All right. What what do you think is important for entrepreneurs to understand about how the funds and and the LP ecosystem works? It's really tough because they think there's sort of layers within layers within layers. So uh, Beezer, who of course you guys mm-hmm. know, who, who I'm a huge fan of, um, Us uh, too. I, yeah, and I just I just saw the other day she recently wrote a, a post about how entrepreneurs should actually understand where right. their VC's money comes yep. from, mm-hmm. and she's right. However, most entrepreneurs are so not there because you're a young entrepreneur, you move to Silicon Valley, uh, you know, you just need to understand, you know, 
what is the difference between the big VCs and micro VCs and angels and who should I go to? And like, you know, should I take seed money from big VCs? And, you know, what does a term sheet look like? And how do I get introductions to VCs and who's good and who's not? And how do we negotiate a term sheet? And, you know, if you get a certain sophistication level, you understand anti-dilution and liquidation yep. preferences and boards and all this kind of stuff. You know, that's a lot for somebody to learn. And, and you know, even if you go to business school, I don't even think they teach all that stuff in business school. So, um, you know, first or second time entrepreneur is hopefully grasp all that. Yep. Understanding, you know, what could go wrong and succession planning issues and, and, you know, and the- At the VC firms. At the VC firm. And, you know, you're, you might get swapped with a different partner and do they have dry powder left? And, you know, what's the life cycle of their fund and all that kind of stuff. I think the likelihood that a first-time entrepreneur would even know to ask those questions is low. And I think a lot of these things you don't learn unless you've actually been through some bad experiences. And now a venture investor, they have a whole portfolio. Um, there's an academic term, I think it's called transactional asymmetry. Mm. Um, you know, they're going to do a lot of deals and they're probably going to you know, quickly start to see uh, a recap and a, and, a, and a contentious sale and a, and a you know, founders leaving the company and all these kind of things early on and start to, to learn about all the things that can go well or bad. I mean, an entrepreneur is less likely, I think, early on to even know to ask some of these questions. Um, so then to get to the point of understanding the whole food chain is even beyond that. And right. I remember uh, having lunch with uh, a VC who was a sponsor of Founders Den and they, them saying, oh, well, actually, we're sort of investors in one of your companies. And I said, what are you talking about, man? Mm. Like, I like you, but you're not investing. And he's like, well, actually, we're an LP right. in one of the micro VC funds that's an investor in your company. And I was like, whoa. Right. <laughs> I had no idea right. back then, this is you know how naive I was. And I think many of you entrepreneurs would not, not, don't necessarily know that some big VCs and or sometimes the GPs of the big VCs mm -hmm. are actually LPs yep. in some of these smaller or newer venture funds. I didn't know that. I didn't know about funds of funds. Um, I didn't know about this kind of stuff. So the reality is um, entrepreneurs probably should know this stuff, but it's not easy. I mean, if you're a first or second time entrepreneur, you're just trying to learn the basics. You're trying to understand how these deals work. You're trying to understand who the players are just in the micro VC and VC um, world. You knowing about, um, you know, the, all the different layers from the real money to the money that, that the check that you're getting, it's unlikely that an, you know an entrepreneur is gonna is gonna know that stuff, um, or even be able to. I mean, absolutely, or, or even understand right. because because the layer, particularly between VCs and LPs, is oftentimes so opaque. It is it also is. just really difficult to understand all of the people involved. And the venture industry is notoriously secretive. Right. They don't on their website. They, you know, on their website, you look at their website, we are founder friendly and we love entrepreneurs and we help you so much and we deliver value add and all this kind of stuff. They don't say who their LPs are. Yeah. Just like they don't say about yeah. their performance. So um, in recent years, I've seen some folks opening up the kimono. So folks like Homebrew have invited yeah. me to yeah. events where I've, mm. I've actually sat down mm. next to some of their uh, LPs. And that's something that right. home, the Homebrew folks have been very open about. Um, Data Collective has been that way. Of course, I'm also a co-founder of Founders Den with Zach and I'm an LP in the fund. Right. Um, but in recent years, I've seen certain folks and they're, they're newer players who seem to be more comfortable um, uh, you know, having the founders they work with and the LPs they work with mingle and chat. But 
10, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't really remember having those opportunities. Um, so I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, the likelihood that they are going to, um, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how to meet the person who's going to do their series A and the idea that they're going to, um, you know, have an opportunity to meet an LP or somebody who's running a fund of funds or even know who those people are, or even, you know, even, um, know who to ask or whatever. It, it's not, it's not terribly likely. So I think Beezer's totally right that it probably makes sense. But realistically, I think, um, entrepreneurs probably have more access to this now, but it's still limited. And, um, a lot of entrepreneurs are just not even going to know what to ask. Yeah. Since you've started investing in funds, anything as you go through the docs or anything else that really jumped out at you as, as, as hugely surprising? I think it's been very educational. There's been a lot of, um, you know, interesting things. It's, it's been interesting to see, uh, the rise of SPVs and opportunity mm -hmm. funds. Right. It's been interesting to see the the code and direct investing from LPs. Uh, it's interesting to see some funds experimenting with variable check sizes and having core and non-core yeah. deals. Um, it's been interesting to see um, the sort of the variability in the outcomes, which I've also now learned from my angel portfolio. Uh, you know, I recently was trying to estimate the return on my angel portfolio, and it was good. And I and I realized that you know, if all the companies that I have invested in that currently I was just marked at one because I have no idea went to zero. It actually didn't change that much. Right. It was all about, you know, am I going to get another 20 Xer? Yeah. Um, and so it's been interesting to see um, the some of the return data, which of course most times entrepreneurs don't have access to. So I now, you know, I'm seeing returns for, you know, five, six different funds, seeing how, um, you know, IRR versus, um, What's it? TVPI or whatever. What's the, what's the TVPI? Yeah. Yeah. You know, cash versus cash. versus cash. Actually, I um I just got one of my first ever distribution checks from one of the funds. All right. Uh, All just right. recently, so that was exciting. All right. And um, that represents an investment from how many years ago? Um, maybe three or four. Okay. But that's a fund I think is doing extremely well. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that's another interesting thing because I think you know one of the the things that a lot of LPs are frustrated about is the lack of liquidity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Now that I'm an LP myself, even a teeny one, I'm also uh, very aware of that. Of course, as an angel investor, I'm also sitting on some big markups that have yet to to exit. Um, and uh, but you know, well, certainly as you think about investing in funds in the future, mm -hmm. and we hear this a lot from other LPs we have on the show, to the extent that you have distributions and liquidity from the funds that you are currently investor in, you're probably more likely to invest in those funds or other funds in the future. Sure. Right? Sure, that's true. But I think right now, liquidity in general has been pretty meager. Yeah. So I think what's been going on lately is people are re-upping and making these big commitments even without necessarily the cash. And the problem is, of course, at some point, certain certain types of LPs, um, you know, maybe, I don't know if it's the diamonds or the pension ones, but it's, it's, at some point, they're going to need to get more distributions to be able to continue making yeah. commitments. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I think it's a matter of asset allocation because if their other stuff is doing poorly, which a lot of stuff is these days, and then they have these huge paper markups, um, but actually haven't gotten distributions yet, that may make them overweight in venture. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if they got a distribution, then they'd actually be able to, you know, Recycle wouldn't be overweight and they'd be able to reinvest. So I do think we are sitting on a potential problem with the liquidity. Um, and I don't know when that will actually 
hit the fan, or, and maybe there will be equity. I mean, maybe in 2017, we will unleash a flurry of IPOs or an unleash a flurry of M&A. I mean, the reality is there's all these huge companies sitting on huge amounts of cash and really, I think, right. need uh, you know, innovation. Uh, yeah. And you know, maybe the IPO window will open up. I mean, you just saw Twilio. I mean, IPOs can work. Uh, so maybe people will get over that hesitation. Um, but earlier this year, we saw some huge, huge, huge fundraisers from new funds, mm -hmm. like crazy amounts. Um, but at some point, this this liquidity problem, um, uh, you know, could be a big deal for um, for some vintage of some of these funds. I mean, obviously, at some point, you do need to distribute capital. But I think that's a problem that's just a problem in general. So I think we need to either, you know, fix the IPO market, <laughs> get M&A, yeah. you know, happening at the pace where it logically probably should be, which is probably, you know, a lot higher than it, than it has been. Or maybe we need to, you know, have something uh, more common with the secondary thing. I mean, maybe, mm. maybe, maybe funds need to be selling stakes in the portfolio right. to, uh, in, in secondary sales right. um, as a, as a, just a regular thing for liquidity instead of just doing it if the, the fund is sort of fizzled out or if, if, if it's for some reason taken too long or something like that. I mean, maybe that needs to be more common and I, I don't know, but I think something needs to happen, but I, but I think it will. I think it's just, you know, inevitably, um, you know, something will be figured out though, you know, there will be some solution, uh, you know, as long as all the companies aren't crap. And then right. that's kind of what happened in 99. I mean, in 1999, right. like a lot of the companies that went public were just horrible companies. And that's just not true today. I hate the term unicorn. And, you know, there may be some things overvalued now, but like a lot of the current generation of companies are just extremely high quality companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so liquidity has to emerge at some point in some way. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, this was great and uh, absolute pleasure having you on the show. And uh, we'll see you again. And congrats yeah. on this great podcast. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. I'm a fan. I've been listening. We appreciate cool. it. Thank you. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring Season 2 of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.